I'm Tony Parrott, and you're listening to the Water Values Podcast. The Water Values Podcast is sponsored by the following market-leading companies and organizations. By Woodard & Curran, high-quality consulting engineering, science, and operations services. By Interra, innovation and stewardship for a sustainable tomorrow. By Xylem, let's solve water. By the American Water Works Association, dedicated to the world's most important resource. By Black & Veatch, building a world of difference. By Trinix, trust in what's next. And by Mentor APM, intelligent asset management software built for water. This is session 228. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGimsey. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my daughter Sarah said, my name is Dave McGimsey and thank you for joining me. Well, I hope everyone's 2023 is off to a great start. I've got a great show for you today with an interview with Clemson University Professor of Mechanical Engineering, John Richard Saylor. Professor Saylor wrote the book, Lakes, Their Birth, Life, and Death, and he provides a fascinating look at some unique aspects of lakes, stuff that I guarantee you haven't heard of if you're like me. Uh, So you're also guaranteed to learn something, and I learned a ton, so please stay tuned. This is a great interview with Professor Saylor. Well, as you know, we always say thank you to our awesome sponsors at the top of the show. Again, those sponsors are Woodard & Curran, Interra, Xylem, the American Waterworks Association, Black & Veatch, Trinix, and Mentor APM. What a terrific collection of impactful companies that have decided to support water industry, thought leadership, and education. So thank you all. And I'd like for you, the listener, to please do me a favor If you work for or with any of the sponsors, please thank your boss or thank your contact at the sponsor firm and tell them you appreciate their leadership in the industry through the sponsorship. You'd be surprised how far a simple little note of thanks will go. And as long as you're letting sponsors know you appreciate their support of water industry education and thought leadership, why not leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, CastBox, or whatever other podcast directory you're accessing the podcast on. It'd be greatly appreciated and, of course, helps others find out about the podcast. And also, please do not forget to subscribe to the podcast. Well, without further ado, let's get to Professor John Richard Saylor and his fascinating look at the birth, life, and death of lakes. So let's get that water flowing. Well, John Richard Saylor, it is fantastic to have you on. How are you doing today? I'm doing, uh, I'm doing real good. It's great to be here, David. Yeah, great. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. Uh, so... Let's. Can we get a little background on who you are and how you came to the water sector? Sure. So I'm a professor of mechanical engineering, and yeah, normally when you uh, you hear of a professor publishing a book, you assume that 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 he uh, is is writing about the research he he does at, at whatever university he's at. And that's that's very common, but it wasn't actually uh, the case for me. I mean, my research is is really in the area of the basic physics of drops and bubbles, which, you know, of course, is related to water, but not necessarily lakes um, or impoundments. And what happened was some colleagues of mine and I had done a a brief study on studying lake evaporation 
Uh, basically, we developed a tool to use satellites to estimate evaporative loss, which is of some use to water managers, water resource managers. And uh, we decided we, we should publish it in a, a journal on limnology, on the study of lakes. And <laughs> none of us was a limnologist, so somebody had to do some, some background reading. And that somebody turned out to be me. Um, and I was very grateful for that because it kind of opened a whole whole door to me uh, about about water, about lakes that, that I wasn't aware of. Uh, you know, I, I think up until that point, I thought of lakes as, you know, wonderful places for vacations, a great place to go uh, jet skiing and, and hang out by a dock. But uh, what I found is that, that in addition to that, there, there are also places of, of really profound wonder and mystery and, and, and even, even danger. Lakes can even be dangerous. And, and this just uh, kind of led me down a path of constant discovery that led to, to the writing of this book. Yeah. So could you expand on the last, uh, last statement you made about lakes are, you know, areas of wonder, uh, mystery, and danger? I mean, what do, what do you mean by that? So, well, I'll, I'll take the, 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 the last part first. So, you know, if we think of a lake as a dangerous place, it, it typically would be something like drowning. But, but lakes can, can do some crazy things. And, and uh, uh, one of the types of lakes I talk about in this book is a series of lakes that are referred to as killer lakes that are, are found in, in Cameroon in, um, in uh, Western Africa. And these are lakes that are are uh, called volcanic lakes. They're, they're basically lakes that, that form in uh, the crater or the caldera of a dormant volcano. And they can be very, very uh, safe and, and do absolutely nothing uneventful for a long time. Uh, but then they can, they can explode. And, and the mechanism of the explosion has absolutely nothing to do with lava, has nothing to do with a volcanic eruption. It's just that these lakes often will absorb large, large quantities of carbon dioxide that, that bubble up uh, from deep below the bedrock, uh, uh, basically due to a remnant of the, of the seismic or volcanic activity. And that carbon dioxide just, you know, for very long periods of time can bubble up and saturate the bottom of the lake. And what can happen is that a... Uh, Various events can cause that to be unstable and to result in the, the sudden emission of that carbon dioxide. So there's a lake called Lake Nios, which in 1986 uh, did this. It emitted all of its carbon dioxide, which was estimated to be about uh, a quarter of a cubic mile all in one night. It was just a sudden eruption of that carbon dioxide, and it silently raced down the side of the dormant volcano and killed over a 1,000 people. Uh, as they slept in all of the villages, uh, all of the villages below, a really, a really stunning and sad, sad uh, natural disaster. So, is that is that like a flash flood when it explodes, or what exactly it, happens when a, the lake explodes? Not really. Uh, so, it, the, the the amount of water that that went over the edge of the crater was very, very small. Uh, what what happens is that the the water in the bottom of the lake is cold. And because it's cold, it can absorb far more carbon dioxide uh, than if it was warm. And in addition to be co being cold, it's at a high pressure. So it's just like a soda, a can of soda. It, it's able to hold a lot of carbon dioxide because it's cold and under high pressure. But when the pressure goes down, all of that carbon dioxide starts to come out of solution in the form of, of bubbles. So what happened at the bottom of Lake Nios was they, 
we think it was an underwater landslide that pushed some of that bottom water toward the top. And once that began to go to the top, it released bubbles, and those bubbles began to rise. And those rising bubbles entrained more bottom water with them. That bottom water, in, in turn, got higher up. The pressure dropped. Bubbles came out of solution. And this, this was a feedback cycle, an exponential growth cycle, which resulted in a very, very rapid release of that, of that carbon dioxide, which, again, was cold and heavy and just raced uh, down the slopes in the middle of the night. Wow. So let me ask you, let me ask you this. Uh, why does – so under my elementary understanding of physics and chemistry, if, a, if something is being dissolved into a liquid like a lake, it – the physics would tell me that it's going to dissolve um, uniformly throughout the solution rather than concentrated at the bottom. What, why is the physical characteristics of the water in these volcanic lakes? Why, why is it conducive to having a higher concentration of CO2 at the bottom rather than uniform throughout? That's that's a real good question. So that has to do with uh, something called thermal stratification. So if you have a system where the lake is deep enough that it's, it's dark at the bottom, right, and, and Lake Nyos is certainly deep enough that no light gets to the very bottom, uh, there's, no, there's no way for that bottom water to get warm. So even though this is Africa, right, uh, the bottom water is, is very, very cool. I don't remember the exact temperatures, but, but you know, probably close to 10 degrees C or something like that, 10 degrees Celsius, whereas the, the surface water – which is constantly being irradiated by the sun and, and warmed up, uh, is warm. So the warm water at the surface is, is light, its density is low, and the cold water at the bottom is, is cool and its density is high. So when you have that kind of stable stratification, the bottom water wants to stay at the bottom and the top water wants to stay at the top. So that's why the CO2 that's being dissolved on the, on the bottom wouldn't normally mix with anything going on at the top because of that stable stratification. But that stratification can be spoiled, and, and that, that's where that underwater landslide came in. As soon as that happened and caused the lake to slosh a bit and for some of the bottom water to move upward where the pressure was low, that was the trigger that basically initiated this, this natural disaster. Wow, fascinating stuff. Uh- so what about some of the, you, you mentioned wonder and mystery. Could you expand on those or do you have, do you have more examples of danger? Well, no, I, I mean, the mysterious part is, is really something that motivated this book as well. So I'd love to talk about that. Yeah, let's move to that. And I think, you know, and, and this is an example of, of not just something that's mysterious, but something that, that kind of just really encouraged me to write the book. And, and that's uh, very special kind of lakes. These are called uh, Carolina Bays. So um, Carolina Bays are, first of all, they're, they're, uh, they are lakes. They're not bays as you would think of, um, you know, like something near the shore. Um, they're, they're lakes. And they're found all along the Atlantic coastal plain from uh, southern New Jersey all the way down to northern Florida. But, but they're, they're located in especially high profusion along the North Carolina, South Carolina border, uh, hence the name Carolina Bays. And the really neat and intriguing thing about these, these uh, lakes is that they're perfectly elliptical. 
So Carolina bays have a perfectly elliptical shape. Not only that, uh, if, you, if you look at a distribution of these bays on a map, you will find that the, the long axis of the ellipse, the long dimension of, of, of the lake, is, is they are all pointed in the same direction. So it's, it's just this really neat thing. The first time I uh, looked at them on Google Maps, I was just kind of floored. And, and I would encourage your listeners to, if they would like, to, to uh, go to Google Maps and enter uh, Elizabethtown, North Carolina. It's just a small town where there happens to be an especially large profusion of these Carolina bays. And if you look just a little to the northeast of town, you start to see all these, these ellipses, these, in many cases, green ellipses, because a lot of these lakes have been drained uh, for various reasons to build something inside or, or to, 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 for agricultural reasons. But they're just kind of everywhere. There, in some cases, there's so many of them that they overlap or you'll find one inside the other. And the thing that just I find really fascinating and mysterious is that that we we still really don't know uh, how these are formed, the exact formation mechanism of this special kind of lake is 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 still un- unclear and um, is something that people are 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 still looking into uh, today to try to uncover exactly why why they have that shape, why they're all pointed in the same direction, and, and exactly, you know, how they're formed. There are theories out there, but the theories that are out there, all of them have some flaws that, that just can't explain certain aspects of these, these really, really intriguing lakes. Except if it's a UFO that created them. <laughs> well, it's funny you should say that because one of the theories wasn't a UFO, but one of the theories was that there was a massive uh, asteroid strike uh, north of Michigan. And Michigan is, is a salient point here because if you look at where all the long axes point, they kind of intersect right around uh, Saginaw Bay, Michigan. And so one theory was that there was a massive asteroid strike and there were secondary ejecta from that strike that radiated outward and happened to hit all along the Atlantic coastal plain uh, to create all of these, these oval, oval lakes. Um, but like the other theories, this one has a lot of flaws. One is that uh, asteroid impacts tend to, no matter what the angle is, tend to form round depressions, not old, not not elliptical ones. And also, there's certain uh, geological markers you tend to see when you have one of these very high impact events that that, in point of fact, are not found around the Carolina Bay. So, so that's that's another problem. It's it's really a mystery. We don't we really don't know exactly. Where, where they came from. <laughs> that, that's, that's absolutely fascinating. So what are some other surprises you might, you know, learn from reading the book about? Well, uh, so, so one surprise you'll find in reading the book, and I found in writing the book, is that, you know, we, we all think of a lake as something which, which has an air-water interface, right? You, you walk right up to it, there's air above it, water below it, and, you know, and you could just jump right in. And that's true for the overwhelming majority of lakes you'll fl- find on planet Earth, but there are uh, a surprisingly large number of lakes located in Antarctica uh, where the lake itself, the liquid water, is found beneath uh, a mile or more of ice, so Antarctica is a continent, right? So it has, it has bedrock, and that bedrock has concavities, just like any other continent does. And some of those are filled with water, 
but instead of the surface water of the water being exposed to the air, it's it's underneath a cap, right? A a, a mile thick sheet of ice, and and these are not little puddles. These are are some of them extremely large lakes. There's uh, perhaps the the best studied one is called Lake Vostok, and uh, Vostok is as large is as large as Lake Ontario. That's how how big it is. And these lakes are, are a true mystery as well, right? They're, uh, to get to them is, is uh, just a Herculean challenge. So you have to drill through a mile of ice to get to, get to the water. And that's something that, um, that people who study glaciers have only just begun doing. So we've, we've only got to the point where we're starting to get water samples from these, these subglacial lakes. An interesting aspect of subglacial lakes, in addition to them being so far down there and so hard to get to, is the fact that they're utterly dark, right? So if you have a mile of ice above your head, there's not a single photon from the sun that's going to make it down to you. And so that that just changes the whole ecosystem, right? So the ecosystem that you and I live in is ultimately driven by photosynthesis. It doesn't matter what you eat. At one point, the carbon from the food that you consume uh, – came from carbon dioxide that was integrated into a molecule via the photosynthesis process, right? So if you eat a steak uh, that came from a cow that that ate a plant and, you know, the biomass of the plant came from from photosynthesis. But in subglacial lakes, that option is simply not there, right? So you have no photons down there. And so everything, the whole life system, the whole ecology of it has to be driven by what is called chemosynthesis, where, you know, biota and and microscopic organisms obtain their energy from chemicals and and use the energy released from chemical reactions to create their biomass. So, you know, it's what's really interesting to me is is whether there's large life forms down there and and what do they actually actually look like. That's going to be a fascinating thing. Uh, to find out as we learn more about subglacial lakes. Yeah, so I've got a couple questions on that. How, number one, how do you even find lakes that are beneath a mile of ice? And I would have, I guess, I would have expected that the lakes would, you know, how are they? How are they liquid? I would expect a lake that's situated on land to be frozen if there's a mile of ice over it. Right, right. Those are yeah. Those are all great questions. So, so the discovery of these subglacial lakes is really kind of odd. Um, so, although they are so far below the surface of the ice, if you look at the surface of the ice, you do see flat spots. And this is what Arctic uh, I'm, uh, I'm sorry, Antarctica and pilots have been observing for for some time in the past was that there there were these spots where it was vast areas that were much smoother uh, than other areas. And the reason is because ice sheets, when they move over rough ground, um, the surface of the ice sheet becomes somewhat distorted as well. Whereas if they, they, they are moving over something smooth, the surface, albeit a mile away, is, is somewhat smooth as well. And so these pilots refer to these areas as lakes. Um, you know, they, they, I, they, they didn't really know how right they were because uh, there was indeed a lake there, but it wasn't at the surface. It was a mile, mile below. Um, the reason why, in spite of having all this, this ice around you, that that water isn't uh, also uh, in, in the solid form is due to uh, two things. 
One is there's some amount of friction that, that occurs as, as the ice moves over the bedrock. So that causes some local melting, which can, can uh, that runoff can then run into whatever depression is nearby. So that's, that's one way you'll get the, uh, get the, the liquid water. And the other is that, you know, the, the center of our, our, our planet is, is extremely hot. And although that's quite distant from, from the surface, there is a flux of heat that emanates from the center of the planet on outward. That's a very small flux of heat. And uh, for those of us who live, you know, at the surface where you and I are, it's negligible compared to the, uh, the, the flux of heat from the sun. But at the interface of ice and bedrock at the, at, at, in Antarctica, that small flux of heat is actually enough to, to heat the local ice in certain places to cause, uh, to cause melting to occur. And there are some as- other aspects. There's a kind of a complicated thermodynamics about the melting point of ice and the pressure of the ice above. But those things are enough to combine to, to cause ice to melt. And in point of fact, um, this keeps hydrologists busy because there's a hole under ice network of rivers and streams and water flow to and from the different lakes, from the lakes to the ocean, et cetera, et cetera, that occurs unbeknownst uh, to us. Interesting stuff. So the name of the book is Lakes, Their Birth, Life, and Death. Uh, talk to me about how lakes are born. What What's the birth like? Right. Right. So, um, you know, the, 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 the short answer to that uh, would be glaciers. Uh, so uh, 90% of the lakes that exist on Earth uh, were formed by a glacier. So glaciers are, are the, the master builder when it comes to lakes. Uh, and, and that's why when you travel, you know, certainly around the United States, the places that you, you find with, with just a, a whole lot of lakes like Wisconsin, Minnesota, northern New York, these are all areas that were once glaciated and did all kinds of things to enable the formation of lakes. So some of those things is to simply gouge out concavities in the surface. Uh, The other things that glaciers do is once they've created those concavities is they leave a whole ton of till or glacial moraine at the end of a long valleys to further enhance the ability of a lake to form. And then finally, of course, they, they provide all that water, right? So glaciers, when they're there, are this enormous amount of solid uh, water. But as they retreat, they leave a whole lot of that behind, uh, filling up groundwater as well as surface water to create, create all of the conditions that you, uh, that you need to have to have lakes. So, so glaciers are, are, are the big deal. And that's why you find them so much either lakes, you find them so much in, in the Northern parts of, of the Northern hemisphere as well as at high elevation. Yeah. You, you know, you just took me back to uh, Mr. Brubaker's uh, uh, class in middle school <laughs> when I was in Ohio and we learned about the moraine and the deposits that the glaciers left in Ohio. So, uh, Interesting how life is a, connects you up that way. That's uh, right. And God, God bless uh, Mr. Um, uh, I'm sorry, I forgot his name already. Mr. Brubaker. Mr. Brubaker. That's right, Mr. Brubaker. <laughs> hey, uh, so we talked about, you talked about birth and the glaciers. What about dying and death of lakes? Right. 
Right. So, you know, it's, a, it's an odd thing. Uh, the very thing that, that enables a lake to form is really the thing that, that, that uh, presages its, its ultimate demise, right? So a lake is what? It's just a bowl, a, a, a basin in, in, in the landscape. And if it's a depression, that's where the water is going to go to, right? So uh, often you, you, you have rivers and they hit some open uh, artificial or natural open depression and they fill it up and, and that's how you get a lake. But of course, the things that flow into lakes are, are far from pure water, right? It's not just H2O flowing in there. Uh, even the, the most pristine of, of streams or rivers has an, an, an enormous amount of suspended material uh, in that water, in that river water. So when a river or stream <clears throat> runs into a, into a, a lake, it slows down. And as it slows down, all that suspended material uh, starts to settle out. And that, that settling or, or, or silting in, as it's referred to, is one of the things that, that most commonly results in, in, in the demise of a lake. Now, that's a pretty, pretty slow process. Um, uh, that's, you know, kind of a rule of thumb is that a typical lake will accrue a millimeter of, of silt uh, per year. So uh, it can be thousands and thousands of years before a, a, a lake fills in. Uh, but other lakes get get more than that, and you know what will will start out as a as a you know a, a crystal clear lake will slowly fill in along its edges. Uh, what was once uh, uh, you know a large lake will become a smaller one, a lake with a channel, and then finally just the stream becomes a stream again um, as the lake gets 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 filled in. So let me ask you about climate change. And a warming climate uh, with lake evaporation is that is that within the realm of of what you're seeing in terms of you know an alternate way for a lake to die besides siltation? Yeah, well, sure, absolutely. So uh, you know, drying out a lake is something that 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 sure can happen on a, st- a time scale far faster than the the thousands of years I alluded to uh, a, a moment ago. And, uh, you know, when we think of, of climate change and, and evaporation, you know, things we're seeing now uh, throughout, you know, our nation in the southwest, uh, Lakes Mead and, and, and places like that, you know, that, that's, that's a real concern and something that can result in, in, you know, the elimination or damage of a lake on a pretty short time scale. Um, but... Th- Evaporation is one thing. The, the, the other thing that can cause uh, the demise of a lake or the elimination of, of, of a lake is, is simply, you know, our, our diversion of the water uh, for, for human uses, often for, for agriculture or simply for, for drinking water. Um, perhaps the most momentous of, uh, example of this is, is the Aral Sea. So the, the Aral Sea is actually a lake. Um, it's located on the border between uh, Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan. And it was once, I think by area, the fourth largest lake on planet Earth. And back in the 60s, uh, the Soviet Union decided to uh, divert water from the streams that fed this lake for, for large irrigation pro- projects to grow cotton, to grow other crops. And this was, you know, irrigation done on a grand scale. 
And so water was diverted from the Aral Sea, uh, you know, the, 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 the area nearby just bloomed with, with agricultural uh, activities. But uh, the consequence of this is that this enormous lake just shrank and shrank and shrank to the point where in, in the 90s, the late 90s, it had shrunk uh, to 10% of, of its former self. You can, you know, you can, you can Google the RLC and see, you know, comparison ish, uh, images showing the before and after. And it's just a stunning, stunning thing to, to see that simple human irrigation uh, led to, 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 you know, the, the practical elimination of, of, this, of this lake. And there's, you know, there's accounts of, of people who've gone to visit this lake, you know, going to where the shore used to be, and there, there's nothing there. There's just now a desert where there used to be, you know, meters of water above you. And, you know, you could just drive across these vast desert, you know, salt flats. Now it was a, it was a saline lake. And just find these rusted hulls of former fishing vessels, and you could just drive for for a hundred kilometers from the former shore uh, to where you know to where the shore is is now, uh, all, all due to, uh, to to irrigation. And it, it's really a, a kind of a, a, a tragedy and a natural disaster too, because when uh, the lake receded and it left these de- desert flats behind. This resulted also in, in immense dust storms where, where the salt that was deposited uh, is blown around. And also all of the herbicides and pesticides that had been washing into the lake, those, of course, get concentrated when the, when the lake evaporates and, 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 and goes away. And those were being kicked up into the, uh, into the air, causing, again, all kinds of respiratory health issues for the populations around the former shore of this, this once majestical lake. And it's something we have to be careful about. You know, this is something that's occurring right now here in the states uh, around the Great Salt Lake. So uh, the population around uh, Salt Lake City and the surrounding area is growing by leaps and bounds. Um, the need for water grows with that. So the, the streams that, that feed the Great Salt Lake have been diverted more and more for, for human use. And so the, the shoreline is, is receding and receding and creating the same kind of uh, desert flats that are concentrated in salt that 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 are seen around uh, the Aral Sea. So there's the same concern. It, it's an interesting thing with salt lakes, right? You you think, well, you know, what is the value of a salt lake? They're kind of like the, uh, I don't know, the, the poor stepchild of the family. Um, you think, well, there's this beautiful, pristine freshwater flowing into it. Uh, once it enters the salt lake, you can't really use it for anything. So diverting it doesn't seem like much of a sin. But but if you allow that to continue to occur, the salinity of the lake gets higher and higher. The lake shore recedes farther and farther. And you have, you know, some some real significant environmental problems that, 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 are, that erupt from that. Yeah. So how, how do salt lakes even get formed? So salt lakes form, that's, that's a really interesting question too. Salt lakes form... Um, in, in what is called an endorheic basin. So the, the, the other name for that kind of basin is a terminal basin. And it, it means just like what, what it sounds like, right? So you, you have a, a basin where when it rains, all the water flows downhill toward the lowest spot, but the lowest spot doesn't have an outlet, right? So it's, it's a basin that doesn't have uh, a, a, an outlet. So many lakes you will find have a river flowing into it, but also have a, a river flowing out of it. And that flow eventually 
makes it to a to an ocean. But in endorheic basins like the the one that contains the Great Salt Lake, there is no outlet, right? So is that that if, if the water level were to get higher and higher, it would it wouldn't empty over a dam or anything like that unless it was extremely high. Uh, so what happens in a situation like that is the water that flows in leaves only via evaporation. And evaporation is, is sort of a filter, right? When water evaporates from a lake, it is literally just water that leaves. Just the H2O molecules escape from a lake via evaporation. But the fresh water flowing in, while we call it fresh water, of course, it has a little, a little bit of salt in it. Any, any water you've ever drunk in your life had a little bit of, of sodium chloride in it. Even your tap water does. So the, the freshwater streams that flow into a lake like the Great Salt Lake, they have salt in it if only a small amount. But that small amount accumulates, right? If it keeps flowing in uh, and, and the only way the water gets out is via evaporation, then that, that NaCl and other kinds of salts also uh, build up and build up and the salinity gets, gets larger and larger to the point where you have a very, a very salty lake, uh, so salty that, that you get crystallization on the shore and all kinds of interesting salt formations uh, right, along the, right along the shoreline. Fascinating stuff. You know, John, it has been fantastic talking to you. I have, I, I have learned a lot. I, re- I really have, <laughs> and it's. I, I, I highly recommend. Uh, I, I'm going to go out and get the book now. Um, well, and, you've made my day. <laughs> but before we sign off, what what would you want to leave the listener with in terms of what what's the what's the takeaway to to for the listener about lakes? Well, I think uh, so. I think one takeaway I, I'd like to leave with is is just that you know there's a lot of big lakes in the world, right? We're here in the United States, we're we're absolutely blessed with with you know the, the, our our Great Lakes system, right? This enormous body of water, and if you've ever visited one, it's difficult to think of it as something that we could deplete, right? I mean, it's it's just this enormous body of fresh water. But, you know, the various disasters that, that we've seen on, on, on our planet, especially, you know, the Aral Sea disaster, show us that, that our thirst, you know, our thirst for water, our need for water, the things that we can use water for uh, is enormous. And that we, uh, as a species, are, are capable of depleting even, even the biggest lakes out there. So, you know, you go to, to wonderful Lake Michigan, it's, Michigan it's, it's tempting to say, you know, there's nothing we could do to dry this thing out, but that's wrong. We could, and we have to be we have to be good stewards, and we have to be careful to recognize that that any resource can be depleted, and history shows that even the largest of lakes can be depleted by humans. So we have to be we have to be careful stewards of the fresh water of the planet. Good warning. It's a good thing we have the Great Lakes Compact. That's right. So. John, thank you again for coming on. You've been fantastic. For those who want to find out more about you, more about your work, more about the book, Lakes, Their Birth, Life, and Death, where can they go to get that information or find the book? They could go to uh, my website, uh, which has links to all kinds of online buyers uh, where you can get the book. And and that website is johnrichardsailor.com. It's all one word. Uh, so it's John Richard and Sailor is spelled S-A-Y-L-O-R. Great. Well, John, thanks again. Great having you on. It was fantastic to talk with you. I really appreciate it. And we'll uh, we'll talk soon. Thanks so much. Thank you, David. It's been great. I really appreciate 
Appreciate you having me on the podcast. Absolutely. We'll talk soon. Bye, John. Bye-bye. I thought Professor Saylor was excellent. And if you like to learn new things, Professor Saylor was a fabulous guest in so many ways. From that exploding lake in Cameroon to the Carolina Bays to subglacial lakes. And of course, most poignantly, I thought uh, his warning to the Great Salt Lake from uh, his story about the Aral Sea was very instructive. Uh, Professor Saylor was just awesome, and I learned so much. So thank you for your time, Professor Saylor. Much appreciated. I'd also love to know what you thought about the interview with Professor Saylor. Please check out the show notes page. For information and links on this episode, just Google the Water Values Podcast. Click the first link that comes up. Again, the Water Values LLC and Bluefield Research are not affiliates. We just have a joint marketing arrangement. And as part of that, Bluefield's kind enough to give us a home on the web. If you still use Twitter, you can tweet about the podcast using the hashtag water values, and you can tweet at me using my handle at DTM1993. You can email me at david.mcgimsey at dentons.com, and you can sign up for the newsletter at that landing page I mentioned earlier as well. Thank you again for tuning in, and I hope you make it a great day. Plus, I want to give a huge thank you to our 2023 sponsors. Again, those sponsors of the Water Values podcast include Woodard & Curran, Intera, Xylem, the American Waterworks Association, Black & Veatch, Trinix, and Mentor APM. This show would not be possible without those great companies and industry leaders providing their support. And again, thank you for listening and thank you for subscribing to the Water Values Podcast. It is truly appreciated, and I hope you have a great 2023. In closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values Podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. listening to the water values podcast thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me well thank you for tuning in to the disclaimer i'm a lawyer licensed in indiana and colorado and nothing in this podcast should be taken as providing legal advice or as establishing an attorney-client relationship with you or with anyone else additionally nothing in this podcast should be considered a solicitation for professional employment i'm just a lawyer that finds water issues interesting and that believes greater public education is needed about water issues And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water.